Hey, um, because I know that we are a very ADD church, let's just all do something together. All right. Take your balloon. All right. Put it down under the chair in front of you. All right. No fart noises, at least for a while. Okay, we'll wait till the end of the service for that. All right, hey, I'm really, really glad to be back with you guys. Um, this has been an incredible series that we've been in. When you've been in this, uh, this series we've been calling In the Margin, and what we've been looking at is how um, when we uh, take what's on the margin in our life, and margin means the, the edge or the space on the outside, and we've been in this series looking at how when we create some margin or space on the outside of our life, um, we do that so that we can become available to help people with our time and with our resources so that we can impact the lives of others. Um, specifically, the lives of the hurting, the broken, the poor, the oppressed. And we've discovered um, that if each of us will just create a little bit of margin in our lives, what may have seemed insignificant to each of us as individuals, collectively, when we put it all together, it makes just an unbelievable impact on the lives of others. Uh, to the tune of, last weekend, 76 thousand dollars that you put out there for Haiti. Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing thing. And I love a statement that Jim made last week. We don't um, do projects. We build relationships to the tune of um, this family in, in Westminster that we've been partnering with, the, the Coleman family. And um, we did do, we partnered with them and we did Messiah's funeral in here on, on Friday. And we've been walking through that with them. And who knows what that would have looked like had we not been a part of their lives. And it was really, really hard, but it was a lot better than it would have been. See, that's what margin does. When we take what seems maybe insignificant to us, we put it together, it makes a huge impact on others. Here's the truth, okay? This is not a new idea. Jim didn't come up with this. I didn't come up with this. Our church didn't come up with this. Um, God came up with this thousands of years ago. Um, look at what Leviticus chapter 19, it's the first time you've looked at Leviticus, maybe ever, all right, says in verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges or margin of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien, which means stranger, as I'm the Lord your God. It's not a new idea. And then Jesus came along, carrying along that idea and really up to the stakes for you and me. In the book of Matthew, he basically said this. Listen, whatever you do or don't do um, for the poor, the broken, the hurting, the cold, the stranger, the marginalized, the outcast, whatever you do or don't do for them, you did or didn't do for me. See, I don't know about you, but as this series has gone on, it's felt to me like this is how church was always meant to be. And I'm not talking about songs I'm not talking about flat irons even. I'm not talking about um, lights or anything like that or buildings. I'm talking about carving out margin in our life to impact the lives of others seems to me to be right on par with the heartbeat of God. And as we've journeyed through this series, it also seems to me that there's just this overwhelming sense amongst us that, listen, if we can't continue to be a church like this, then let's just close the doors and go to the mountains for the weekend, Right? But my vote is, and I'm hoping your vote is, why don't we just keep going in this direction? Anybody in for that? Yeah. So, so what I want to do today is put a hinge in this series, so to speak, kind of a, a turning point. Now that we've established how important it is for us to create margin in our lives, what we really want to start focusing on now is who that margin is for. And it will not surprise you to hear that the margin in our lives is for the marginalized. 
The margin in our lives is for the marginalized, which is where um, the margin or spare change in our pockets has been going for the past few weeks. See, while we've, um, what we've been doing the past few weeks is, let's be really honest, it's relatively simple, what we've been doing the past few weeks, but it's also very, very rare. It doesn't happen very often. And if we're really, really honest, it's really not in our nature to do what we've been doing for the past few weeks. Um, to actually reach out to each other, much less um, to the marginalized, is a revolutionary thing, isn't it? That's why there's so many of us in here tonight. That's why we're so pumped up, because it's a sense that we're a part of this kind of revolutionary thing that's going on. Here's what I mean, okay? As people, we have this tendency, this strong tendency, to form little clubs, Little cliques, little societies, little fraternities, sororities, whatever you want to call them. Our tendency is to find other people like us, to circle up with people like us and exclude people who aren't like us, who aren't a part of the club. I mean, if you go to a playground tomorrow and watch a bunch of three and four year olds, you'll see it happen. If you go to an elementary school, you'll see it happen. Middle school, you'll see it happen. High school, you'll see it happen. Anybody remember picture day in high school? I actually loved picture day in high school. Here's why. Because not so much to get your picture taken, but because at my high school, if your club was getting their picture taken, no matter when that happened, you could get up, leave class, and go get your picture taken. So on picture day, I was a part of every club in the school, right? I mean, I was a part of FCA. I was a part of chess. I was a part of choir. I was a part of Future Farmers of America. I was a part of Young Democrats and Young Republicans. It didn't matter to me. I was, I was going to every club because I just wanted to get out of class. Now, you fast forward to college. Those of us who've been a part of college, okay, um, this is maybe the place where there's more clubs than you've ever seen. There's a club for everything in college. And maybe the best example is fraternity and sorority row that you can walk down at a lot of schools. Now, here's the thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing for us to group up based on common interests. I mean, best example I could give you would be this, right? Uh, church. Um, we're, supposed, we're here grouped together based on this common interest of pursuing God, His will for our life, and, and leaning on His grace and worshiping Him. That's a great thing. It's a really good thing. But here's the problem. Good things can go bad really, really quickly, can't they? We talk about that a lot. We don't only have this tendency to group together, we also have this tendency to group together at the expense of others. While Jesus taught us that we should group together for the benefit of others. Yet for some reason, you and I have this strong tendency to become exclusive in our groupings. And this can look a whole bunch of different ways. And a lot of us have felt this in our own lives. Discrimination against people based on their age, their sex, their gender, their race. Um, We have a tendency to set such high standards sometimes that people can't jump over the hoops that we set up for them. We look down at people who aren't in our club or aren't in our clique or whatever. It's kind of this country club mentality that we digress towards. And we all naturally do this, unfortunately. And it happens not just in our country and not just in our culture, but in every culture and every country on this planet. I mean, when I went to Bible college, we we didn't have fraternities or sororities, but we still figured out ways to distinguish ourselves and separate ourselves. First, we did it based on floor. I lived on First South, and so there was only one guy's dorm at my school. And so if you lived on First South, you didn't talk to anybody else. You didn't hang out with four South guys or four North guys or whatever. And and then when we moved off campus for lots of reasons, um, we moved into a house and we did the same thing. Whoever was in our house, that's who we hung out with. And the truth of the matter is... If you really, really kind of scratched us, we bled this idea that we were cooler, we were better. We looked down on other people. And it happens everywhere all the time. And all of us, at one point or another, and at various points along the way, we found ourselves in the club sometimes. 
And a lot of us, me and you included, right? There's been many times in our lives we found ourselves standing in the margin. On the outside looking in, being stiff-armed by people who are on the inside. The same was true in Jesus' day. There were clubs and cliques and fraternities. And the best example I could give you would be these guys called the Pharisees. If you've been around here for a while, we talk about them a lot because they appear a lot in the biographies of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you read those, you'll see those guys pop up over and over and over again. And what I want to do tonight is I want to paint a picture for you of what this fraternity of the Pharisees was really all about. And then we're going to look at a story where Jesus interacts with them. And it won't surprise you to find out it gets pretty heated really, really fast. And to begin with, the Pharisees' name literally means the separated ones. See, Pharisees separated themselves from those around them in every way imaginable. The big idea was they wanted to showcase their devotion to God in extraordinary ways. Which at first glance doesn't seem like such a bad thing, right? I mean, after all, the church literally means the called out ones. Which means that Christians, followers of Jesus, are called to be extraordinarily different. But here's what we're supposed to be extraordinarily different in. In the way we love each other. In the way that we care for each other. In the way that we worship God. The way we raise our kids. The way we laugh. The way we play should be extraordinary. The way we work. The way, the way we interact with one another is supposed to be extraordinary. But unfortunately, the Pharisees, much like a lot of Christians today, decided to trade being extraordinarily loving for extraordinarily religious. And consequently, extraordinarily weird, to be really, really honest. Right? Right? Here's what I mean. They dressed differently. Pharisees actually had an 18-piece outfit, okay? Imagine wearing this in the Middle East in the heat of the summer, okay? Complete with robes that flowed. They wore um, these boxes on their head and sometimes on their arms called phylacteries with little scrolls of Scripture inside the boxes. And Jesus criticized them openly for this. Jesus said it this way. He said, everything they do is for men to see. They make their phylacteries or those boxes wide and the tassels on their garments long. One time he was speaking directly to him and he said it this way. You guys are like whitewashed tombs. Oh, you're beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. Could you be more direct, Jesus? You know, they, they prayed differently. They had a goal. Catch this. They had a goal of saying a hundred prayers a day. And if you did that, that was considered a good achievement. They would often stop in the middle of the street during a prescribed time of prayer. And they would bend. They would arch their backs all the way to the ground until their hands were touching the ground. And they would pray for long periods of time in the middle of street corners, in the middle of the marketplace. And Jesus criticized them openly for it. Which is why when Jesus said, listen, when you pray, don't pray like those guys. Don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. They had different rules. By that I mean they had a lot more rules. They added thousands upon thousands of rules to the Old Testament law. Absurd rules. Um, For example, um, they went to great efforts to make sure that they never did work on the Sabbath because it was a prescribed day of rest. Um, But they went to absurd degrees. to, To the degree that they wore themselves out trying not to work on the Sabbath. It was real backwards. Let me, let me give you a couple examples. One of the rules was you can't spit on the Sabbath. Because if you spit, you'll make mud. And if you make mud, someone might step in the mud. And if someone steps in the mud when they get home and they see the mud, they might have to scrape the mud off their shoe, which would be work, and you would be guilty of violating the Sabbath for spitting in the first place and making that person work. 
it was work to describe it, right? Um, they, had a, they had all kinds of these types of things, which is why when Jesus, just, just as a side note, when Jesus one day heals this man who was born blind by spitting on the ground and making mud and wiping it in his eyes and telling him to go wash and the man was healed, you maybe heard the story, Jesus got in a lot of trouble because he made mud on the Sabbath, some other examples would be this. They, they had a, a rule that they come up with, came up with that it would be wrong to save a woman or a child who was drowning on the Sabbath. A couple reasons. One, it would be such work to remove all the layers of clothing they had on to jump in and save someone to begin with. And two, swimming and saving. Well, that's work. Can't do that on the Sabbath. So just walk by the person who's drowning. They had to pay dues to be a member of the Pharisee club. They had four levels of Pharisees within their fraternity. If you were a fourth-level Pharisee or a chief Pharisee, you weren't even supposed to hang out with first- or second-degree Pharisees. And if you did, you risked losing your status. So they weren't allowed to do business even with non-Pharisees, which actually hurt the local economy and the people they lived among because they created this exclusive circle of business interests that actually harmed the people around them. They wouldn't pay their tithes to a priest who wasn't a a Pharisee. They weren't supposed to eat with people outside the fraternity. I could go on and on and on. It was was crazy. They were exclusive in every way. Now, time out. If we're really, really honest, the truth is this. I've continued to have conversation after conversation with people who would say, my church experience actually looks a lot like that. That's why I'm getting all the heads nodding at me right now. My church experience, my experience with people who claim to follow Jesus is they set up these big hoops that you have to jump through and they require you to do things and they put rule on rule on rule and nobody can live up to them and they point fingers and tell you everything you're doing wrong but never extend an arm of grace or mercy. It's a lot of our stories around here. See, unfortunately, churches, because they're made up of people, have a tendency to become more like fraternities and country clubs. Just like the Pharisees 2,000 years ago. Which is why every time Jesus interacted with the Pharisees, fireworks happen. So here's what we're going to do. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn here. It's also in your program. Luke chapter 14. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk really, really slowly through this story. And as we do, what I want you to do is just picture everything that I just painted for you. All that background, I want you to picture what's going on in this story. All right. So look at this. Luke 14, beginning in verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. All right, stop right there. Anytime you're reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and you see the phrase, one Sabbath, or on the Sabbath, your ears need to perk up and go, "Uh uh-oh, something's going to happen here. All right? Because Jesus was the one who came up with the idea in the first place. I mean, the Sabbath was his idea. But as you read through the Gospels, you're going to find out that every time Jesus had the opportunity to blow up the Pharisees' stupid rules on the Sabbath and reveal their hypocrisy, he would do it. All right? Now, notice this also. Jesus is in the house of a prominent Pharisee. In other words, this is more than likely one of those fourth-level, big-deal Pharisees. Okay? Jesus, as a non-Pharisee, shouldn't even be allowed in this guy's house, which tells me that this guy has an ulterior motive to potentially trap Jesus, which I think is indicated by that next phrase, which says he was being carefully watched. Right? All right, now pick it up in verse 2. Look at this. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. 
Now, what that means is this man had what we would today call edema. Which means this man was retaining water to an unbelievable degree. He was swollen and probably very deformed looking. Now, time out for a second. We've all had a moment, if we're honest, if not many in our lives. I've had many. Where you've been approached by someone or you found yourself in an elevator with someone or passing someone in a hallway or sitting next to someone on a plane or a bus or whatever that looks like, where because of the way they looked, your stomach turned. And so did mine. And because of the way they looked, you had to look away when they walked by. This is that guy. He's had those looks and he's had people look away from him for a long, long time. And this guy is exactly where someone in his condition would be forced to be in this culture, in the margin. He's probably out in the courtyard outside the Pharisee's house because it would have been against the Pharisee's rules to even have him inside the house because he would have made them ceremonially unclean. But Jesus always had sick and hurting people following him. So the scene looks something like this. A bunch of well-dressed religious guys inside about to feast with a bunch of hurt and lost and sick and broken people standing literally in the margins on the outside looking in. Look at this, verse 3. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. So literally this translates that Jesus responded to them. Now the interesting part is they haven't spoken yet. Which means Jesus is responding to what's going on in their hearts. And from this point on, we're going to see Jesus go on the offensive through the rest of this story. Look at this in verse 5. Then he asked them, If one of you has a son, or even an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. This is an immediate point of conflict for these guys. Because the original laws for the Sabbath, the original laws allowed for someone to save a life on the Sabbath. Life was the highest value. All right? So it, it wouldn't be considered work. You, if your ox falls in the ditch on the Sabbath, by all means, common sense, pull the ox out. Much less your son or your daughter. Now Jesus, what he's done when he asks them this question is he's trapped them, hadn't he? Because if they answer with what's really going on in their hearts and say, well, actually, no, Jesus, I don't believe it's okay for you to heal on the Sabbath. They're in violation. They're contradicting Scripture and common sense. All right? But if they go, well, actually, it is okay for you to heal on the Sabbath, then they can't trap Jesus, which was the whole point of this whole meal to begin with, and they'll violate their own silly rules. So they have nothing to say. They're trapped. So here's lesson number one from this story, okay? Jesus values all people. All people. Now, at first glance, you're going, well, that sounds like no big deal. That sounds like something you should say in church. And of course, he values all people. Well, let me tell you how important it is to follow someone who actually values all people in our culture. Have you heard of Peter Singer? I hadn't until this past week. Um, Peter Singer is a philosophy professor at Princeton. Uh, the New Yorker called him the most influential philosopher alive today, um, which means that he matters, right? Because he's influencing influencers on how to think and how to see the world. And this is how Peter Singer sees the world. In his view, we should consider children alive only once they're 28 days old after birth. And up until that point, we should allow parents to decide whether they wish to dispose of their children without legal consequences. 
Here's a couple quotes from him, in case you don't believe me. He says this, If we compare a severely defective human infant with a non-human animal, a dog or a pig, for example, we will often find the non-human to have superior capacities, both actual and potential for rationality, self-consciousness, communication, and anything else that can plausibly be considered morally significant. In other words, all things being equal, the pig might be more valuable than the kid, so kill the kid. That's what he's saying. Let me read this one. When the death of a disabled infant will lead to the birth of another infant with better prospects of a happy life, the total amount of happiness will be greater if the disabled infant is just killed. The loss of happy life for the first infant is outweighed by the gain of happier life for the second. Therefore, here it is. If killing the, for example, hemophiliac infant has no adverse effects on others, it would be right to kill him. One of the most influential people in our country. See, it's ideas like that that lead to things like ethnic cleansing in Rwanda and holocausts in Europe. Kind of sounds somewhere in the ballpark of being unwilling to rescue a drowning woman or child because of your religious law, right? Does to me. See, not everyone values all people. Jesus is a revolutionary because he does. So now we transition to the second part of the story, and it gets even more explosive. Look at this verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable or story. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So here's the way that would have looked, all right? In Jesus' culture um, in the Middle East, they sat at tables about 18 inches off the ground. They would recline on their side at the table and, and eat. And the person who was the most honored guest or the host, the most important person in the room, would sit at kind of the crest of a horseshoe-shaped table, so kind of at the point. The, mo- the second most important person would be on his right, the next person on his left, and then back and forth across the table. So I don't know if you've ever seen a bunch of preschoolers jockey at snack time for the seating chart. Okay, but that's what Jesus is watching happen in front of his very eyes, except you've got full grown men with 18 feet, 18 piece outfits, boxes on their head, tassels everywhere, throwing elbows and shoving, diving at the table, trying to get the most important seat. And Jesus just looks and laughs and calls it what it is. Stupid. Right. Foolish. He's going, you guys are an embarrassment. Now, you don't have to believe in God or the Bible or anything else to know that what Jesus says next is true, all right? Jesus points out something here that we all know to be true. People who are always trying to get ahead at the expense of others, who lie, cheat, and steal, people who live their life trying to show off their status and demonstrate their worth at the expense of everyone else around them, eventually get humbled. Eventually. I mean, just think of some CEOs that we've seen thrown in jail recently, right? Here's the flip side to that. People who live their lives for others eventually get elevated, highlighted, and applauded eventually. Let me give you one easy example, okay? A couple weeks ago, Jim quoted Mother Teresa in here. You remember that? Okay. No one, to my knowledge, emailed in after that weekend and went, could you please explain who Jim was quoting? I've never heard of her. No no one did. Why? Why? Why is she one of the most famous people to ever walk the face of the earth? 
Not because she jockeyed for position or prominence, but precisely because she never did. Which is why 1 Peter 5, 7 says this, Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. So here's lesson number two from this story. The proud get humbled and the humble get elevated. The proud get humbled and the humble get elevated. Now watch this in verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I want you to notice something. Jesus is the only person talking in this whole story. We haven't heard from anyone else yet. He's totally been coming after this fraternity of religious snobs. He's been on the offensive from moment one. Now he turns his attention to the guy who invited him to dinner to begin with. The host. And Jesus looks around at these guys who all look the same, dress the same, act the same, and say the same things. And he looks around and he goes, Hey, um, would you guys quit trying to one-up each other with your fancy parties? Would you guys get out of this game where you try to throw a great party for him and then he tries to throw a better party for you? Would you quit spending so much money on people who are well-fed? Would you quit spending everything on each other trying to show how great you are? It's a waste. Your lavish feasts. And it's in this moment that someone else decides to speak up. Not sure why, all right? But here's what he says. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, To Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Like Jesus is going to go, ooh, got me. You know, (laughs) This was a traditional statement that these guys made because these guys fully anticipated that they would be the ones who would be rewarded with being in God's presence after they died. Because after all, look at them. Look at how good they've been. After all, they're a part of God's chosen people. Not only that, they're the cream of the crop. They're the best of the best. The top guns of the religion that they were in. They were in the in crowd. They were in the fraternity. If anyone was in with God, it was these guys. And here's what Jesus has to say about it. Verse 16. Jesus replied. And it means he's looking directly at the guy who just spoke to him. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything's now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. I'm sorry. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. And here's the thing, all right? Traditionally, there would have been at least two invitations sent to a party in Jesus' culture. The first would have been like an RSVP, save the date type thing that everyone would return. And then when the party was ready, he would send out servants to say, the party's ready, everybody come, it's time. And these folks have RSVP'd, but now they're making lame excuses. And Jesus is using symbolism that these guys would have understood very, very well. And it was very pointed and direct at them. See, the man who invites people to the banquet represents God. And the people invited represent the nation of Israel. More specifically, these guys sitting around the table with Jesus. But Jesus paints a vastly different picture than what they were expecting to hear. You remember a few weeks ago, Jim actually taught on the last few verses of of chapter 14. He talked about how, Jim said this, The best thing you could ever do for yourself 
would be to put Jesus number one in your life ahead of everyone and anything else. That's the best thing you could ever do for yourself. And that's the way we prioritize our life if we're going to follow after Jesus. What Jesus is saying is, listen, you've RSVP'd for the party, um, but you've forgotten to prioritize for the most important person. And because of that, you're going to miss out. So look at this in verse 21. The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. The master literally sends out the invitation to the outskirts, to the margins, to the overlooked, to the beaten down, to the exploited, to the broken, to the marginalized of society, which, by the way, in the story, represents you and me. This is us. We're in this story. We're the ones who've been cut off and marginalized and pushed aside. And then Jesus concludes with this really, really haunting statement for the Pharisees. Look at this, verse 24. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my, I believe Jesus was going, my banquet. My banquet. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, if you miss me, You've declined your invitation. He's looking at these guys around the table going, you're missing me. And you're not going to be rewarded with the best seats at the party. You're not even going to be at the party. And here's the thing. As we learn around here all the time, when Jesus tells parables, when he tells stories or uses metaphors, what he's trying to do is point to something that we understand and compare it to something we don't. He's saying, this is like that. So in this case, um, a guy throwing a party for all the marginalized people in his city is a lot like what God has done for you and me. Right? This, this party is like that, your life. So lesson number three is this. It's my favorite. God wants to party with those who've never been invited to a party. I mean it. We worship a God who loves to party. You see, I think our perceptions of heaven have been shaped more by Hallmark and cartoons than by the Bible. See, every time we find a description of heaven in the Bible, you know what we see? Singing, loud singing, dancing, feasting drinking. We have all that. It's a banquet. It's, it's elaborate, um, which means this, okay? Everything we love about parties now will be better. In fact, perfect in heaven. In other words, we love music at parties now. In heaven, there'll be music, just no country music, right? <laughs> right? Amen. They'll be, don't boo me. Don't send me an email. All right. I got the majority on my side. All right. There'll be wine. There'll be no alcoholism. There'll be food. No gluttony. There'll be dancing. No Macarena. All right. That one won't be there. Electric slide. Maybe. All right. YMCA for sure. No Macarena. So people ask us every now and then around here, why is the music so loud inside the building at Flatirons? Here's why. Here's the answer, okay? We're just practicing for heaven. All right? That's all. There it is. There it is. So here's my question. What if we took those three lessons 
What if we tried to make a parable of our own out of them? What if we took the truth that Jesus values all people, that the proud get humbled and the humble get elevated, and God wants, desires, yearns to party with those who've never been invited to a party? What if we took those three truths and tried to demonstrate that in some tangible way for our community to demonstrate this is what the heart of God looks like? What if we valued the most marginalized people in our society? What if we humbly served and elevated the most overlooked? What if we threw a party for some people who rarely, if ever, get invited to a party? So here's the thing. Um, A few months ago, Jim and I were planning out the teaching for winter and spring, and we were talking about Luke chapter 14 that we just walked through. And Jim and I, we've been together, I think it's like six years now, we've been working together. And because of that, um, we can finish each other's sentences. And that's pretty unique because Jim, being ADD, doesn't finish many sentences. (laughs) So I think that's the value I bring to the table, all right, is to be able to finish the sentence So we're sitting in the office and we're talking about Luke 14 and Jim says, what if? And I went, what if we did a Jesus prom? And he went, exactly. Now you have no idea what that means. Here's what that means. A friend of ours, um, a guy who was was my youth minister growing up, all right? Uh, And honestly, I got to be really honest, aside from God, this man's more responsible for me being in ministry than anyone else on the planet, okay? His name is Brewster. And uh, years after stepping out of student ministry, he started this thing back in Kentucky that's um, since been done in a lot of different places called the Jesus Prom. And it was born out of Luke chapter 14. And I want him to tell you about it. My name is Brewster McLeod and um, was youth minister, was Scott's youth minister for uh, all his high, junior high and high school. And then I uh, moved into access ministry. And access ministry is a ministry for mentally and or physically challenged adults. And um, that's where we birthed the uh, Jesus Prime, the whole idea of the Jesus Prime. I know that uh, every summer we would go to Accepticon, and it was a, it was a, it was a home for mentally and or physically challenged adults. And uh, before we unloaded the bus with all the helium balloons and all the food and the keg of Kool-Aid, I remember I would always quote, now y'all, Luke 14, 12. Jesus says the next time you give a banquet or a dinner or a party, don't invite your rich neighbors, your best friends. Instead, invite the blind, the lame, the handicapped, the poor, though they can't repay you, you all will be repaid at the day of the resurrection. Most of this group, if they did go to their high school prom in their 10th, 11th, 12th grade year, they could have gone, but probably they didn't go to the prom. If they were my age or older, then they weren't even allowed in public school. So we thought, you know what, let's do, a, let's do an event and let's, uh, let's call it a Jesus prom. We want to give a party. And we want to give a party to men and women who normally don't get a party if um, they didn't get to go to the prom then most likely they've never been in a limo and also they've probably never been invited to be a part of a wedding and so we felt like tuxedos and prom dresses formals and limousines were a thing we wanted to do and kind of up front the beginning and that first prom i think we had 250 mentally and or physically challenged we probably had 100 volunteers and they showed up and we make it so big that it looks like that we're preparing a party for the king or the president and his wife. Who, who would you say has benefited more from Jesus Prom? Um, mentally and physically challenged people or people who connected with those people? Well, I'll, I'll first off, Scott, tell you that the one who's benefited the most, you left out, was Jesus. But I mean, I, that's okay, Scott. <laughs> that, that really is okay. No, I mean, um, as we're sharing that scripture and as you're talking, as you're uh, developing your whole scripture, Luke 14, this weekend, I have to also move to Matthew 26, the least of these. And so 
when you say, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me some drink. I was cold, you gave me a coat. I was in prison, you visited me. And then Jesus said, when you did it to the least of me, you did it to me. And so Jesus has benefited through those mentally and physically challenged. And so we get to tell our escorts and our greeters, and, and I get chills even telling you this right here, but we get to tell all these people who are even our fittings, they get to do a fitting and Jesus is, a, is that body. They get to sit down a plate of food right over here or right over here, and they get to feed Jesus. They get to hand out water to this guy named Jesus. Brennan Manning says that Jesus spent a disproportionate amount of time with people described in the Gospels as the poor and the blind, the lame, the lepers, the hungry, sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, the persecuted, the downtrodden, the captives, those possessed by unclean spirits, all who labor and are heavy burden, and the rabble who know nothing of the law, and the crowds and the little ones, and the least, the last, and the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In short, Jesus, he hung out with ragamuffins, and a ragamuffin is one who is totally dependent on the grace of God. Later, I love you. Bye. You in? Yeah. All right. So um, here's the thing. Um, we're going to throw a party for the most marginalized people in our community. I have a banquet, a prom, for those who have never been invited to the prom. And we're going to go all out. It's going to be extravagant. It's going to be an extravagant evening. We've been planning this thing for a while in secret. Um, we're we're uh, calling it Shine. And we started playing it back around our Christmas series where we talked about light shining in the darkness. And so that's what this is all about. And We've been looking forward to unveiling this to you guys for a long time because we just know the heartbeat of this place and we know you're going to jump in fully. And here's the truth. If you don't, it won't happen. All right? So here's the thing. All the info you need is going to be online. Go to flatironchurch.com. Click on Shine on the front page there. Um, here's some of, the, some of the details. We're inviting our friends, ages 16 and up, who have disabilities mentally and or physically and their caregivers. Okay? And we've made invitation cards for you that you can grab in the lobby out by the, out by the box, which I'm not sure where the box is going to be because of all the people in the lobby. So it'll be out there somewhere, all right? Um, you can get those, those invitations out there so that you can hand those out to people that you know and that you connect with, all right? Um, it's going to be on February 26th from 6.30 to 9 p.m. in this building, all right? We're just going to pack it out. And from this point on, this place is going to get started being decorated like an extravagant ballroom, all right? Um, we need donations of... Tuxes, doesn't matter if it was from 1971, that's great, all right? Tuxes, suits, dresses. Ladies, we need all your um, uh, bridesmaid dresses, old prom dresses, maybe wedding dresses you want to get rid of, whatever, whatever that looks like. It just needs to be clean, all right? So if you wore it on New Year's Eve and spilt something on it, get it clean first. We need it back here, though. We need all those donations back here next weekend in the lobby. We're going to be piling up tuxes and dresses and suits so that we can start doing fittings for shine, okay? Um, we need 600 volunteers, roughly, to sign up. And you can sign up for that online. There's a million different roles you can play in this. Um, finally, here, here's one more thing. Um, because we came up with this idea, um, Jim and I drive the finance people crazy around here, um, after budgets were already set, we don't have a budget for this, all right? So here's what I'm proposing. Every dollar that goes in that box out there this weekend goes to shine, all right? So that we can throw the biggest party we've ever thrown for anybody. A huge, extravagant party. 
So out there by the money box, there'll be a team of people. You can drop in your dollar or whatever you want to drop in there. And you can also get that invitation and you can a- ask questions. And one of the people that will be out there will be my friend Brewster. He's here. Um, so you can go up there and blame him for whatever you don't like about me. All right. Um, or you can give him a big hug or high five or ask questions about how Jesus' prom was born. Okay. And so when you get questions, okay, because you will from people in this community, why are you doing that? Here's a couple answers that come to my heart. Um, We're doing it because we've all been marginalized. We've all been cut off at some point in our life. And we were all separated from God because of our sin. But because of Jesus, we've been invited and we've been included to sit at his table. To a banquet, to a feast. So when someone says, why are you, why is your church, why is Flatirons doing this? My thoughts go to, well, because this is kind of like that. This party, this banquet is just a parable. It's just a story. It's just an example of the radical, inclusive grace of our God who loves to party with broken people. Let's pray. God, just excited. It just feels right um, to get in line with the way that your son demonstrated love on this earth without bias without pretension. He loved without fear. So God, would you, would you give us um, that kind of love to reach out to people we love so much that have been marginalized and overlooked and pushed down and turned away from for most of their lives. God, thanks for being a God who invites all of us to depend on you, all of us to depend on grace because of what Jesus has done for us. And it's in his beautiful name. Amen. Yeah. Okay, so I'm, I'm listening to, uh, to Scott talk about this. Uh, I, I sit down. Okay, it's all right. Um, you, Scott took all the time, though. You took all the time. Okay, just so you know. Um, here's the thing. Is I'm sitting back there, and I'm sorry I spilled my Coke back there. I'm ADD. That's so I can do anything I want. So, all right. But here's the thing. I was sitting there going, why do we all love fairy tales so much? I mean, every, every girl in here, when you're a little girl and dreamed about your wedding, you immediately saw Cinderella's ball, right? As we were talking about even doing this, this shine party, I said, what, what, what is it? It's like, it's Cinderella's ball. You know why I think we love fairy tales so much? Snow White, Cinderella, whatever that is. It's because there's some things that the only way that could ever happen in this world would be magic. That's the only way. I mean, how can a, how can a forgotten, marginalized stepdaughter ever be princess for a night? And the answer is, well, it's not even human. It would have to come from something outside of us. It would have to be magic. I don't believe in magic. I believe in Jesus. And I believe that Jesus loves people. And I think that Jesus values all people. But I got to be honest with you, though. This shine thing makes me a little nervous. I'm going to be really honest. And here's why. People with disabilities all my life have made me uncomfortable. I'm just going to be really honest with you, okay? And, and let me explain that, is that, you know, even, even a few weeks ago, um, I was up in Longmont at Borders Bookstore, and a whole busload, and I, I think they had come from a, like a, a, a home or something like that, a hospital, and, and about 30 or 40 people with severe physical disabilities came in, in wheelchairs and, and walkers and things like that, and I got nervous. I was like, <sighs> and, I, and I figured out, I think I know why. Um, they remind me of everything I'm afraid of. You think about it. I'm afraid 
Their, their lives are out of control. I'm afraid my life won't, I can't control my life. They are totally dependent on other people to take care of them. I don't ever want to be at that point in my life where I'm dependent, I, I need somebody else to take care of me. I want to be independent, don't you? I don't ever want people to look at me and go, oh, bless his heart, or have pity on me, or look at me and say, I'm glad I'm not like that. These are my fears. But the truth is, um, you know, Scott says this is the way church is supposed to be. And we weren't talking about Flatirons. But if one thing that you've learned at Flatirons is we are the church of broken people. We are the island of misfit toys. We are the, we are the people that most people would say, we don't really want you around. There's a lot of us we would say, that's my story because we've screwed up and have so many of our own things in our life. And I think when I look at people with disabilities, it just reminds me of all the things that I am I'm just clever enough to hide it more than what some people with some physical disabilities don't have the luxury to do. They're a mirror of my life. And if anybody ought to embrace the marginalized and the broken and the disabled, whatever that is, it would be us. Because we have, especially those of us who say, you know what, I am totally dependent on God. I can't fix my life. Hey, we is people like that. Okay, that should, that should be our new t-shirt, all right? Let's just say one, two, three, we is people. One, one, two, three. We is people like that, all right? So, you know, let's, let's, let's embrace that. And let's throw a party. You know, I know there's a lot of tragedy in the world and a lot of sadness in the world. Of all the times that hang on to God desperately, it would be now. Because the marginalized people of the world, and we is those people, we need him more than ever, don't you? Don't you? So let's get, 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 your, get your balloon out, Okay. You've been waiting for this. Like, what are we doing with this, all right? And so we're all going to blow it up at the same time. So if anybody makes a noise, you know what I mean? All right, so on the count of three, everybody blow up your... I'm cheating. One, two, three. Here we go. How big till it pops? How big till it pops, all right? Keep on going. Now tie it off. I can't ever do this part. You can't come to my party. <laughs> See, I'll get another. All right, so, so here's the thing. Is we are going to... I'm ADD. What are you, dude? Yeah. So everybody stand up, okay? So we are going to pray, and then we're going we're gonna to sing one of my favorite party songs. And if you want to dance... Are you, all right, so this is until February, so take dance lessons, okay? Um, but here's the thing. is We don't want to have a little party. We want to have Cinderella's ball. We want to have a party for a king and queen for a night, all right? So dig deep and fill up the box. Come back next week with a tux or, a, or whatever that is. And let, let's, let's love people that, that God loves because we is people like that. I'm going to pray a short prayer and then do whatever you want with these balloons. Knock them around, whatever. And we're going to go out of here. Um, be careful because there's a lot of people in the lobby and you'll trip over them. And if you break your leg, you can come to our party. So it all works. <laughs> God, we love you so much. All, all, all we're trying to do is just a fraction of what you've already done to us. See, we are the marginalized. We are the ones outside looking in. And our only hope was if you would come outside to us and say, would you like to come to my party? And we said, yes, it's the only good decision we've ever made in our life. Yeah, we do. We want to be a part of your party, God. So, I mean, it just makes sense that we would do that for the people in our life that we love, that you love more. So, we celebrate. In Jesus' name, amen.